under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. And welcome to it. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I am playing John Mellencamp's Pink Houses because it brings up a memory like music often does. It smells and it's music. But it, it reminds me of a teacher who taught all of all things over at Auburn Geography. And he asked the class one day, do you think China will overtake the United States economically? And most of us said, yeah, of course. And he said, what happened to you red, white, and blue loving Americans and your pink little houses? He loved John Mellencamp. He played the song for us. And in my mind, it was like, well, it's basic numbers. Things can always happen. Uh, but China is on the rise, and I expect it will continue to rise. And to talk about this topic and get into it is Dr. Don Murphy. She's the Assistant Professor of International Security Studies at the U.S. Air War College, specializes in Chinese foreign policy and domestic politics, Northeast Asia, international relations, and comparative politics. So without further ado, Don Murphy. Dr. Don Murphy, how are you this evening? Good, Joey, and thanks for having me here tonight. Oh, and thank you for being in studio, being here tonight. Um, be a fun discussion um what would you say to kind of my professor there in auburn it seemed like common sense to me well china's going to continue to rise if no major calamity happens and is this sort of baked in just given population numbers and what's going on in china I think for the most part, if China continues with its um, current economic trajectory, that they will definitely surpass the U.S. from a GDP standpoint, you know, especially given how dynamic their economy and the fact until a few years ago they were at 10% growth rates and now they're closer to about 6.5%. But minus a major global depression or some sort of disaster within China, I would anticipate that would continue. Now, I we have some topics lined up, but I want to start with the personal what made you want to go into studying china i mean this is it's a huge field of study there's so many angles you can tackle uh, china from what got you interested in the first place actually uh, a long time ago in high school starting my freshman year in high school i took chinese language took okay. it all through high school all through college did study abroad and and back then actually did an undergrad in industrial and labor relations so had a very different focus on china but was fortunate enough over the years to live there about six years and eventually did my phd and, and focused on the topics that you mentioned earlier so it's it's been a lifelong interest of mine okay yeah that's the best reason ever you know the language you've been there uh, so i think that's a great reason so i one way i have had this framed in my mind uh, is through the work of graham allison and what he calls uh, the Thucydides trap, arguing uh, back to Thucydides in the Peloponnesian War. Essentially, the idea goes that when a rising power challenges an established power, 
in history, and he, with his team, studied many cases throughout history, there's usually some sort of conflict, and if not all-out war. Um, now, I want to generally give you the floor on what do you think of that sort of lens of looking at a rising China in relation to the United States? Do you think Allison has done good work in this regard? So Allison's work is based in a very broad theoretical tradition of political liberalism. And I do think, you know, 20 years ago, it was not as apparent that some of those dynamics were at play. But I think increasingly, especially since 2008 or so, you're seeing a dynamic where China's economic and political power is growing. And concurrent with that, its military power is growing. And as a result... Regardless of its intentions, it becomes more of a concern to the U.S., and we're seeing, you know, the U.S. increasingly be concerned regarding military activity. So a lot of Allison's arguments are that war may be more likely than you anticipate um, because of miscalculation and because the interests of the two states actually are not the same, and that that's becoming more apparent as China's power grows and as the U.S. potentially is becoming fearful of a rising China. Well, and they're really starting to feel their oats in analog might be, uh, in some ways you hope they don't behave this way, but the United States at the turn of the 20th century. And I believe Allison points to Teddy Roosevelt, where uh, essentially in our near abroad, in our area, don't mess with us. We rule. And you see China doing that in a few different ways, I believe. Um, Now, one that comes up is the South China Sea. And China is sort of I've heard Robert Kaplan put it that they're, they already think they're at war, but that's an alarming term uh, for us as Americans. He pointed out that if you actually start fighting, you've already made a mistake going all the way back to Sun Tzu. I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm very much a, I'm a layman in these terms, Don. Um, but it, the South China Sea is one example. Uh, what are some other areas where China is pushing out and sort of flexing their muscle? And how are they going about this? So South China Sea, I do think it's important to point out that it's territorial disputes that exist within the South China Sea. And China has been building up its military assets and, you know, conducting land reclamation and and a number of activities that that are concerning, especially to the U.S., given our concerns regarding freedom of navigation and and other issues. But essentially, when we talk about South China Sea, you're dealing with territorial disputes with a number of other Southeast Asian nations. And then you also have the East China Sea with the Sinkaku. Daoyu Islands, which is a territorial dispute between China and Japan. So I think the first thing to remember is that all of these disputes, there's two sides of the story, and they've been disputed for quite a while, but it's only been recently that you've seen kind of extraordinary actions associated with that. And clearly, it is increasingly becoming a point of tension between China and its neighbors and China and the U.S. So I don't necessarily, I think it may be I think we need to be careful how we interpret it, because you can interpret it as military expansionism. You could also interpret it as them trying to make territorial claims and establish facts on the ground in their mind, you know, within the confines of international law. And and as you probably know, international law, there's a lot of room for interpretation. There's different, you know, ways in which to look at these issues, and there's not broad consensus on that. And clearly there's not consensus regarding who has sovereignty over those particular... Um, formations. Okay. So, 
that would be, but that's probably the area that beca- that comes up most frequently regarding yes. China's more assertive behavior. Another piece would be Taiwan. That's an ongoing issue ever since the nationalists fled after the Civil War in 1949. So uh, Taiwan's been an ongoing issue. It's actually been uh, a bit quieter over the last eh, you know, six, seven years. It's heated up a little bit more now, but, th- but that would be another example. But again, Taiwan is a piece of territory that China considers to be part of its sovereign territory and um, is asserting claims associated with that. Absolutely. And before we go on, we've, we want to make clear you're representing yourself this evening. Th- that is correct. Not the Everything, Department of Defense. That's, that's right. My, my comments tonight are my own personal views as a scholar and, and does not re- represent the Air Force or Department of Defense. Now, and I want to get in, come back to the South uh, China Sea, maybe tie that into the Belt and Road Initiative and why that is so valuable to China. But I want to back up for a second and do more broad strokes. China's sense of itself, its own uh, rejuvenation, so to speak. When Americans talk about the American dream, we're still a fairly new nation. It's like creating things anew as we go on and on. We've got a little bit of a history under our belts, but it's still mostly, oh, we want life to always be better and better, and we're not always hearkening back to a a former place. When China talks about the China dream, what are they really getting at? Is it, it, they have such a broad and deep history that I'd imagine it's not always forward-looking. Right. So the China dream is a phrase that was coined by Xi Jinping, so the current president and the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. He started using it in the 2012-2013 time frame when he took power. So the concept itself is relatively new, and I think it's still taking formation. I mean, part of it is about all of that civilization, all of that history that you're referring to, previous culture. But I think most importantly, the message behind it is that China wants to be a great power. It wants to be recognized in the international system. And that it, as its economic and political power grows, it wants to be recognized in that way. So it is, it's tied to history, but it's a very new phenomenon to, to use that term. Now, as I was reading, uh, especially Graham Allison's work, he's, he started referring to the, the century that starts uh, in the 18, mid-1800s leading up uh, to uh, you know, Mao and the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party and the Civil War there with the nationalists. And they referred to that as, what, the century of humiliation? What, when China is telling that, to, or at least the, the government and the party is telling that to its people, where are they coming from? What was the big humiliation? The humiliation, as you noted, in the mid-1800s, you had the opium wars between the, the United Kingdom and China. And as a result of that, there were a number of treaties that China was forced to sign. So it had to give up Hong Kong. It had to give up territory around Hong Kong. It started to lose you know, some of its territory and Western powers in particular were given a lot of rights within China. Together with that, so you had the, the encroachment of Western powers on China. You also had Japanese occupation at, at various times. So as a result of, you know, in the, the late 1800s, you had a Sino-Japanese war. And at that point, China lost Taiwan. It lost, you know, some other territory 
And so that's sensitive. And then it continues in the early 1900s after the collapse of the last dynasty in China. You had a period of basically warlordism and civil war where China was very weak and it was very susceptible to foreign powers. So again, you have Japan insert itself into Manchuria and establish something called Manchukuo, which was essentially a puppet state in um, in northern China. And then you had the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War in 1937, which was the beginning of World War II for China. And during that time frame, Japan occupied large portions of China, including its capital. And there were a number of atrocities that occurred during that. So essentially, they're referring to the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. They felt as though they were repeatedly violated by foreign powers. They were invaded. They were mistreated. And they never want to have that again. They, they want to be strong and they want to have pride in their country and are in many ways very bitter about that happening in the past. Well, and 100 years seems like a long time, but it's been more than 100 years since the American Civil War and there's still major ramifications, still a heated topic at times for Americans. So I can imagine uh, that those are heated issues for the Chinese and, and very much animate what they're trying to do uh, today. You know, I, I saw just a cartoon today with uh, President Xi's remarks that uh, muscular language that don't try to mess with us when it comes to the issue of, of Taiwan uh, or Hong Kong, the one China policy. It was a very straightforward message he gave today. And there was this little cartoon that came with it. And it's a bit of a shot at the West where it was uh, it almost looked like a Chinese puppet, string puppet. And it looked like a, a Western businessman controlling the strings saying that this is why we don't want democracy. Democracy is a way for uh, the Western powers to divide us and to control us. This is why you need one party uh, communist rule. And a big part of, I think, uh, G's uh, well, platform or program, if you will, it's, uh, it's just called Xi Jinping thought is the way we put it on socialism with Chinese characteristics, I believe. And so what are the, th the three planks of that? Uh, we have nation, one party rule, and Xi himself as the personification of this power of bringing the nation together. Um, I'm wondering, is this really uh, something major we should look at? You know, and this is breaking where we thought China was going with the rise of Xi, or is this sort of oh, you could have seen this coming? Is this a major deal with the you know the presidential term being taken away? These sorts of things. So I, I do think it's important to point out for the viewers that China is a one-party authoritarian communist system, and, and that's been the case, right? And if you think about after 1978 or so, after the death of Mao Zedong, China pursued a number of reforms in the economic and political realm and has moved away from being a totalitarian state to being much more of a hybrid that had many aspects of a liberal market economy. But on the political side, although there has been expansion of freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, free participation. It's a much more vibrant society than it was back in Mao's era. That said, you still have 
have an incredible amount of social control in place via the internet, via uh, you know the party's control of society in almost every aspect of life. And you could argue that increasingly since Xi Jinping took power, that a lot of the freedoms that previously had been expanding have actually been contracting. Mm. And I would say if you look at that across the board almost, if you look at human rights lawyers, if you look at the treatment of um, Uyghurs in Xinjiang, which is one of is a predominantly Muslim province in China. If you look at freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, um, it, across the board, I would say there's been a rollback for a few reasons. I think one is that Xi Jinping has been wanting to consolidate his power. I think in the wake of the global financial crisis back in 2008, there was kind of a renewed confidence on the part of China regarding the vitality of this hybrid between a relatively open economic system, but with a controlled political system. So mm. I, I think this confidence that, okay, maybe we don't need to move as much towards more democracy, more participation, we actually could serve as a model. So I think that's been kind of developing over the last 10 years or so mm. as a result of that and as a result of some preferences of Xi Jinping. On the nationalism front, I would say that the use of nationalism really started before Xi Jinping. It is something that ever since Mao passed away and Deng Xiaoping took power and they've moved away from a lot of the legitimacy associated with communism, philosophical communism, what's really filled that void for the Chinese Communist Party has been economic performance and nationalism. Hmm. And especially since the mid-90s or so, nationalism is something that can be both stoked up and, you know, can uh, be something that results in quite a bit of popular support for both Xi Jinping and the People's Liberation Army and other, you know, parts of the bureaucracy. So, I think you see all of those things happening. I think all of it was happening before she came to power. What's different about Xi is he's really the most charismatic and most powerful leader that we've seen. Uh, arguably, a lot of people are seeing, saying since Mao Zedong. I, I think still time will tell because Deng Xiaoping was very much an influential um, leader. And I, I don't see Xi, Jing, Xi Jinping as being at Mao Zedong, at, at Deng Xiaoping's level yet. But he is now enshrined in the Constitution. Mm. Increasingly, his um, thought is being used as kind of a, a major foundation of the party. And as you said, a very significant development, although not entirely unexpected is that very recently China got rid of term limits, which was a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, that's just been since the 1990s that you had this norm of a president when he came into power would serve two terms, five years each, so a 10-year term. That has now been abolished mm. and Xi Jinping will not be retired. It doesn't appear that he will be retiring and he has not... Um, it doesn't appear that he's selected any sort of successor. So this is new. And um, the fact that he's going to be in power in that way and that he's consolidated power enough to be able to make those changes indicates the level of control that he has and how much support he's been able to gain within the Chinese Communist Party and other parts of society. And it's not explicit that he's going to be president for life, but no. I, it could be, we don't know. That I've read in the New York Times today, he was referred to as the national helmsman. Mm -hmm. And is that that's an allusion back to Mao, correct? It, there's been a lot, I would say, ever since he took power in 2012, that there's been kind of a conscious effort to make him Mao-like in certain hmm. ways. Um, and 
again, time will tell how long he is in power and what that means. But the fact that it does not appear that there will be just a, a transition of power to the next leader that's chosen by the Communist Party at the end of this second five-year term indicates he may be in power for a while. Well, and I don't want to focus too much on G, but he, he wears many hats. He's not just the president, correct? Mm-hmm, right. What other positions does he hold to maybe show the audience that he has really consolidated power? Well, this is true. So any leader in China, you know, since Mao, essentially, is number one, and the most important job of that leader is to be general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So you have to think about it. There's two different hierarchies of mm-hmm. authority. There's a communist party hierarchy and then there's an actual government bureaucracy. The more important hierarchy is the party Party. and many officials wear multiple hats so they have a position in the party, they have a position in the government, they may have other positions so most importantly he's general secretary and that was true of Hu Jintao before him and Jiang Zemin and Deng Xiaoping and etc. So that's very standard. He also is the chair of the Central Military Commission so he is the one civilian that leads the entire People's Liberation Army Mm. but again that is the standard for that position is always the general secretary the chairman of the military commission and the president. And then you have a premier, which is the the number two position, actually runs the executive branch of the government. And that's Li Keqiang, who's in power now. So this is not, it's not unusual to Xi. What's unusual is that he's gained enough power to now alter the constitution Mm. and to not abide by norms that were beginning to be institutionalized to have these peaceful transfers of power between individual leaders over time. So that is unusual. And the fact that he's really gone out and via his anti-corruption campaign tried to clean up a lot of society. But uh, as I'm sure you know, you can crack down on corruption to clean up society, but you can also use that to eliminate many of your enemies, to accuse them of corruption, take them out of power, potentially have them executed. There's lots of consequences for having corruption at that level. Well, it's a shame how politics makes us so cynical. But it's the fact. It's not cynicism. It's just reality. And uh, there's a reason any one person, any a party would want to consolidate power. You want to do things. And there are a lot of things China is interested in, and that's what we started off the conversation with. Now, with, say, the the South China Sea, um, but other parts of, say, the Belt and Road Initiative, but let's focus on South China Sea. Uh, What is... It's not just a pride point, obviously, for China. There is, I'm sure, economic interest, military interest. Why is that corridor in the sea so valuable to China from their perspective? Uh, There's multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. One is territorial claims that they believe it's their sovereign territory. So there is this pride issue associated with it, right? You also have economic resources. So in that area, you have gas, you have fisheries, you have, you know, other economic resources in that region. Another piece of it is just for China to have space in its own backyard for various activities. That's a piece of it. Another is if you think about the Straits of Malacca, a lot of trade that goes to and from Asia goes through the Straits of Malacca. So just as much as the U.S. wants to ensure that there's freedom of navigation through that, China also has significant 
interests. So those are the main drivers, but I would say the actual um, symbolism behind the territorial claims and China at this point linking that back all the way to the 1800s, these very long-term territorial disputes, that that is a larger part than I think a lot of people give credit to in those particular disputes. And then when you look at East China Sea, which is the dispute with Japan over the Senkaku Daoyu Islands, I think that's even more important to think about. It's, It's not just a territorial dispute over a rock. It's about this struggle between China and Japan that is really lingering since World War II. I mean, arguably, obviously, the war ended, but there's a lot of bitterness regarding Japan after the war and feelings from a Chinese perspective that they haven't apologized enough. And those rocks are very much tied into that. And just this ongoing competition, not to mention the fact that Japan is a treaty ally of the U.S., and is in many ways seen as being a puppet of the U.S. in the region. So that one is much more about the, this broader struggle with the U.S. Hmm. for hegemony in Asia and in Southeast Asia. That there's also a component of that. Many of the the countries in Southeast Asia are closely aligned with the U.S. and, from a Chinese perspective, wouldn't have the power to push back in the same way if they didn't have U.S. backing. If not for the U.S. and that, and that makes sense. Uh, the U.S. Navy. I mean, in, in for folks out there, the, the simple fact is the U.S. is a power in the world, in particular this part of the world, because we're a naval power. Um, we can project that power and, and, you know, the aircraft carriers, I think and this, again, shows how much of a, I'm a layman, but was there not an episode, I think, in the 90s under Clinton with a dispute over Taiwan where essentially Clinton just parked aircraft carriers right there and said, deal with it. And I think the Chinese found that to be embarrassing. They don't want that to happen again. So uh, let's focus again because i've used this uh, term a few times the one belt one road or the belt and road initiative is this really a kind of a, a goal like an idealistic goalpost a vision is it sort of strategic advantage for china like we were suggesting um is it maybe an open global initiative i heard one person from china say this is an open global initiative this is to help everybody or is it maybe all of these things going on at once And before I speak about Belton Road, I do just want to say something quickly. You made the comment that the U.S. is a naval power, and and that's a big part of our significance in Asia, which I agree with. But I do think it's important for your listeners to think through the fact that we have a mutual defense treaty with Japan. And Japan, after the war, has a constitution that really limits its military activities. And so, in many ways, we provide Japan's defense. South Korea, we have a mutual defense treaty with. We have a mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. We have a strong relationship and we sell arms to Taiwan. Right. We have a mutual defense treaty with Australia. So, I mean, it's it's more than just being a naval powder, power. We have very strong treaty commitments and a heavy military presence broadly across all of our services. And then you have Guam and then you have Hawaii. So, in many ways, the U.S. is an Asian power and has been since the end of World War II. And, and China is uncomfortable about that fact and to a degree uncomfortable might be too mild of a term i i think that it's varied over time because in many ways the u.s presence does ensure a certain level of peace right it keeps keeps japan from militarizing again potentially from a chinese perspective it 
you know, in many ways may be seen as pacifying for the U.S. to be there economically and, you know, to have a, a robust presence. I think where it's become more of a point of contention recently is, you already mentioned Taiwan, that is a very sore point. And the other is that if the U.S. is uncomfortable with China rising as a hegemon, mm. then that becomes much more problematic, right? Absolutely. So the U.S. has been the hegemon in Asia for a very long time, and now we have China growing in power and increasingly is perceiving that the U.S. is not comfortable with the ways in which they are growing in Asia. So that creates tension, and well, I think... We're back to the Thucydides trap. Right. Um, and it, it could be a third, it could be over time. Taiwan, it could be if North Korea gets out of hand. There's that's the whole point of that lesson is it could be some sort of war precipitated by events that you didn't even see coming and mm-hmm. wars that people didn't even want. But uh, we actually looking at the clock. We got to hit a quick break here and we'll come back uh, talk a little bit about One Belt One Road and a few other things. Again, we're talking to Dr. Don Murphy. She's an assistant professor of international security studies at the U.S. Air War College here in Montgomery over at Maxwell. And uh, Don, thank you again for being here tonight. Uh, We'll be right back after this, folks. Clark. Oh, welcome back. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, and this evening, yes, we're actually serious tonight. We're informing people tonight. I'm not talking about psilocybin mushrooms like I did last night, though there's cool studies going on at John Hopkins and all that. We'll get back to that tomorrow, unless Dawn wants to bring it. No, no, she does. She's shaking her head. No, I won't do that to her. Again, my guest is Dr. Dawn Murphy. She's the assistant professor, international security studies at the U.S. Air War College and specializes in Chinese foreign policy. Now, where we left off, um, this is a bit of foreign policy, but domestic to the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, this It's so broad sweeping. In some ways, it is a very uh, you know detailed infrastructure program. In other ways, it's almost this idealistic, we can connect with all the world. So for the folks who maybe have never heard of that term, how would you characterize the One Belt, One Road initiative? So Belt and Road is an initiative that was announced by President Xi Jinping in China in 2015. The actual initiative itself was announced in 2015, but it really built on a separate initiative that was announced in 2013 that there was going to be a maritime Silk Road and a land Silk Road, so two roads at that point. And before that, I do think it's important to note China has had a strong engagement with the regions involved for a very long time. But if we talk about what Belt and Road is in, in its current form, Essentially, it is focused on a number of regions. So first of all, I do think it's important for the the viewers to know where it's focused. So Southeast Asia, Central Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, parts of Africa, Europe. So it's pretty much everything west of China. So it's a very large, you know, you've got... 
about 70 countries that are technically part of it now and that continues to grow even in the last few months there's been discussion of having a polar silk road and there was the extension of an invitation to a number of um, south american countries to be part of the belt and road so it is an ever-expanding initiative i would say at its core it is an attempt for China to become more economically and politically linked to all of those regions. Okay. And I think that was the, the initial intent. So it's about foreign aid. It's about infrastructure development. It's about establishing better economic trade, better connectivity through roads and, and other infrastructure. But over time, it's definitely evolving into something more, regardless of whether that was the original intent or not. So I would say today what it is, it's all of that, but it's also increasingly China's focus on becoming a Eurasian power again and potentially having Eurasia and the countries to the West as a balance to the U.S. in Asia Pacific. So if you think about all of the issues that we've been discussing in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, right. on you know with Taiwan, there's a potential for a lot of conflict there. So China's wanting to have strong relations to the countries to its West in order to have some options in order to get oil, to have good political relations. But also, if you think about China's development, it has been fast over the last few decades, but the highest growth rates have actually been in the east of China, facing mm -hmm. towards Asia Pacific. If you look at the west of China, that's the, the least developed areas. So a lot of the, the reason why they're wanting to build out to the west is to encourage economic development and economic connectivity of the western provinces to the, the rest of the world. And I would say all of that is true up until 2016. But with recent changes in the international system and some potential fear that we may not have, for example, U.S. leadership in a lot of multilateral institutions going forward, sure. I do think China increasingly is using this as an example of how it can contribute to providing global public goods as a model for globalization, as a model for how it wants to interact with other countries, and really building that foundation. So I think there's many aspects of Belt and Road, everywhere from just kind of the, the microeconomic factors all the way to the large geostrategic um, grand strategy balancing. I do think another important point is mostly it's economic and infrastructure and political. But if you think about the base that China opened about two years ago in Djibouti, yes. in Djibouti in Africa, that's the very first base that China's opened. And before that, China had an explicit no-basing policy globally. Hmm. And uh, I would say the two developments that have gone against that would be what's happening in the South China Sea. You could argue that increasingly the military presence there is looking base-like in certain ways. But Djibouti is the first overseas base that they have established in this way. And the reason they established Established it was in order to be able to fight piracy. That's something they've been involved with since 2008 on a multilateral basis. To evacuate their citizens out of Libya, out of Yemen, out of other trouble spots, you know, in the Middle East that have recently had conflict scenarios, and to protect their broader economic interests right. in the region. So I do think it's not technically included as part of Belt and Road, but if you want to think about Belt and Road as a larger geostrategic yes. approach, you would need to include that and think about it across instruments of power, economic, political, military 
social, etc. Now, I, I want to get really into the, the realm of opinion here. Uh, because in, unless something big happens, and there there could be changes in the world economy, there's a lot of things that could happen. Uh, but, say China continues their rise, continues their economic development, they're trying to play a larger role politically in international in- institutions, uh, and generally being kind of the, the person that come with the money and we want to make a deal, and uh, China rises. That's the point. Do you, what do we make of a Chinese government, population, nation uh, as a leader in the world? Is it something that should just, on the face of it, whether I'm not, a, I don't consider myself a nationalist in the American sense, but should it just be considered something like, no, America can never give up that leadership position? Or is, is it a real threat if China becomes a major world leader and... Uh, not only regional hegemon, but influence abroad? Or uh, is there maybe something that can put us at ease, that if this is potentially inevitable, uh, is this a, maybe a better partner than, say, other countries in the world as a leader in the world? So I should say first that I think overall, historically, China has been more inwardly focused than outwardly focused. Right. Right? Has, has not, and, and we can have all kinds of arguments over history and, and things like that, but at least in the contemporary era, has not been expansionist in the way that some other countries have. And we now live in a, a normative order where expansion is actually very much frowned upon. So right. you think about, you know, Russia going to, into Crimea and, right. and Ukraine, and this is very much it is frowned upon so i think given both china's tendencies in that way that ultimately their biggest concerns are stability and staying in power and ensuring the territorial integrity of the territory that they already possess whether that be xinjiang or tibet you know ultimately taiwan hong kong those are the things that keep the leaders up at night and although we may have these friction points i think ultimately china's relatively inwardly focused That said, as China rises and as China becomes the number one economy in the world, becomes, you know, increasingly powerful politically and militarily, I do think from a U.S. perspective, it it becomes increasingly problematic that China has an authoritarian political system that is potentially rolling back freedom rather than moving towards it. And especially if you start to put that together with technology. There's been a lot of reporting recently regarding China implementing a social credit system (laughs) um, and using facial recognition and having just a lot of technology in order to institute political control within its own borders. Occasionally it will sell that technology abroad to to countries that want to implement similar types of Systems, But I don't see China being in a position now or in the medium term of really wanting to spread its system outward. But I do think that from a U.S. perspective, having the most powerful state in the system as an authoritarian, communist, one-party system that does have very different values from ours, that could be problematic on a number of levels. Because from a U.S. perspective, although occasionally our behavior may be... um, Hypocrisy. <laughs> right. We do, I mean, as a nation, democracy, human rights, freedom, these are things that I would say across all political spectrums we hold to be dear and is very important to us as a country. So yes. I think that difference of interests um, 
becomes problematic over time. I also think that the relationship between state and market within China becomes more of a problem as China becomes more powerful. So what I'm referring to is if you look at the major sectors of their economy, construction, mining, oil, telecommunications, finance, it just across the board, there's many sectors that still are primarily state-owned. And um, there used to be speculation that China was moving more and more towards a market economy. I think there's a lot of indicators that although they're benefiting a lot from having a market economy and it's much more liberal than it used to be, they may be at a point where they're wanting to have continued control over certain sectors and they're focusing on indigenous innovation and being able to be self-sufficient in many ways, partially to protect themselves that if relations with other states go sour, that they've got the capability to defend themselves in the longer term. But so as that as that continues to be a different conceptualization of the relationship between state and market, and as China becomes a larger player in the global economy, I think we start to have friction, right? So if you think about telecommunications, Huawei out of China, that's built up the telecommunications infrastructure throughout sub-Saharan Africa, that is a, an organization that has very close relations to the Chinese state. Or if you look at the Chinese construction companies that are going out and building ports around the world, those are state-owned. And when they come to the U.S. and want to buy ownership, then often the U.S. may, right or wrong, view that as a national security threat. And I think right. increasingly over the last couple of years, you've seen sensitivity in Congress and with the administration regarding that. So my, my overall point is it's not by itself just the, the, the different systems we aren't necessarily going to have conflict, but I do think as their power rises, it, it becomes complicated and it may change some characteristics of the international order in a way that does not benefit the U.S. Well, and and though, especially under Donald Trump, under President Trump, there seems to be this talk of you know, foreign policy realism and whatnot. It does come back uh, to basic values. And it, again, China, as you pointed out, is still a communist authoritarian state. Um, and... I almost want to flesh out what that looks like in China uh, in terms of I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I know you've been there, uh, but just the everyday uh, citizen or member of the Chinese society, uh, it, it just seems like what is the repression like where it exists? I mean, it, if you try to say rock the boat and speak your mind and uh, behave as an activist in even big ways or small ways, what is the response you will get from the Chinese government? So the first thing I should say, as I said earlier, it's no longer the totalitarian regime under Mao, right. right? Much more open now. And if you're on the streets of Shanghai or Beijing and you look around, I mean, it's vibrant. People are happy. People are smiling. They're excited. And a lot of that's a function of their quality of life has increased dramatically over the last few decades. And I think there's a lot of energy and excitement around that um, in a way that in some other societies you don't see. So I do want to highlight that for anyone listening that overall just kind of the feeling on the ground there's a lot positive and there's a lot of excitement it's not a feeling of just you know you're not in North Korea it's not right. the 100% repression that it's said like Brave New World without the test tubes potentially and without the Soma okay increasingly so that said 
it's still a very i already mentioned the internet so there is the the great firewall the government really does control down to the web page down mm. to the hour and censors when there are um messages out on the internet that they they don't want to be viewed by the population you know a lot of foreign websites can't be viewed you can't get to facebook social networking in general there's chinese systems that you can use within chinese borders but the government has really cracked down on anything that would facilitate um, organization in certain ways so you have that as far as freedom of the press there is the newspapers are either state-owned or they are heavily state-regulated. So all the major newspapers get lists of redline topics and what they can or cannot report on, and there's serious consequences for that. Hmm. For scholars, you really are um, supposed to toe the party line in many ways. You do have certain areas of scholarship that you can have a, a bit more vibrant debate, but again, you can't cross certain lines or else you get censored or you lose your job. Um, there's been cases of scholars who look at Uyghurs in Xinjiang that have been given life sentences in prison for um, d writing something that it was seen to be instigating some sort of secessionist activity. Mm -hmm. You have... Um, People can still be put in jail for political crimes. So it's there's a lot of control, and it can be very targeted. And it can also um, be increased at certain points in time. So, for example... Freedom of religion is allowed in China now. Technically, you can you can be religious. You can be part of a church. But you need to be part of a state-approved church mm. that's registered, right? So whether that's Catholic or Christian or, you know, any um, a mosque, you, you can be Jewish. You can be all of these different faiths, but you have to be. So if you do something outside of that, you are at risk of being put in jail or, you know, something worse happening. And so that's a way to control society. So just across the board, there's lots of control that's occurring. Is there any uh, sort of arbitrariness to sometimes the crackdowns, like keeping people... Uh, in check, it, it reminds me. I, I think, in some ways, like North Korea represents, say, George Orwell's 1984. But I love Orwell's essay called "Such Such Was the Joys" about being in a British boarding school, and he talks about it's not just following the rules; it's about being a good boy. And it's not very clear all the time what it means to be good. Is there sometimes it depends? I'd imagine on one's position in society, an arbitrariness to uh, crackdowns or repression. So I would say I would say actually probably the vast majority of Chinese citizens live their lives in the way in that they want that they want to live and they, they know where some of the red lines are. Right. And so where you get into trouble is if you start trying to go out and organize, if you want to try to form some sort of alternate power base. I mean that right. and the state both clamps down on that, but I think also has been very sophisticated in the ways in which it manages those issues. So, for example, now entrepreneurs can join the party and they're actively recruited in. So mm. capitalists are part of the party and if you're part of the party, you get more pro promotion opportunity and power and networking and sure. so they provide a lot of benefits for operating within the system and I think um, 
they've done a pretty good job of that. They also try to proactively address social issues. So when you have pushback about, you know, inadequacies in the medical system, they try to fix that. Inadequacies in pension systems, they, they will put in a new pension system. You know, if you've got an area that can't economically develop because it doesn't have roads, they'll go out and build roads. So they hmm. provide an awful lot of benefits to the population. But then they also have repression that if you break the law, if you, you go against it, you can quickly be punished for that. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's arbitrary necessarily, um, but dependent on if there's a sensitive situation that occurs. So right now right. they're having some large political meetings in Beijing. Right. So there's reporting that some of the bars in this particular area that's kind of a Western hangout for students, you can only have 10 foreigners in a bar right now. Mm-hmm. That's just right now for the next, you know, the, the two weeks of these meetings because they're trying to keep any sort of right. um, inappropriate behavior down from a political standpoint. Well, so it's not arbitrary. It's tied very specifically to concern about there could be protests right. this yeah, week, okay. so we're going to really crack down. That makes sense. I mean, well, and one thing that really crystallized it for me and everything we're talking about is uh, it was a World Economic Forum panel mm-hmm. I was watching, and some scholars are saying, oh, if you criticize them geopolitically or you criticize their economic programs, they'll invite you to speak in China. And then somebody spoke up and said, yeah, it's not true for human rights activists. There's right there. So there is vibrant, there's scholarly discourse, but there's certain topics that that is not allowed. Off limits. So, and it, and that can change over time. So no, there's not a strong encouragement to have scholars come in and talk about human rights violations or Tiananmen Square is things that have happened. There, there's um, still very strong red lines associated with that. Okay. Well, Dr. Don Murphy, thank you for joining me tonight. That went quickly. Um, thank you so much. And uh, we scratched the surface barely, folks. Like any topics, uh, imagine to yourself if somebody from another country, another planet goes, what is, what is the United States of America all about? You couldn't do it in 48 minutes of talk time. But uh, I thank you for scratching the surface with me, uh, Don, and I hope to have you back sometime. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, folks, uh, thank you for listening. This has been the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I will be back tomorrow night with the one, the only, Peyton Jolly. The last time she was here, we talked about sex, um, but in a nice way. It wasn't explicit or pornographic. I don't know if we'll talk about that again, but you'll just have to tune in and find out. Talk to you all then.